We are back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, Culture Editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. I'm coming to you on a snowy, a rare snowy winter day here in Washington, D.C., wishing everyone a happy new year and joined by my friend Sarah Westwood, who's a political reporter at The Washington Examiner. You may also recognize her work from her days at CNN. Sarah, welcome to Federalist Radio Hour. Great for having me. Thank you. Of course. Um, on this, this snowy New Year week, I guess we can call it, um, I wanted to talk to Sarah in a, a sort of and assess the the president's agenda, the state of the president's agenda. 2021 ended uh, on a fairly dramatic note here in Washington, um, as Senator Manchin said, finally, he could not support the Build Back Better bill uh, before the new year. And we immediately heard that Democrats plan to sort of rest resurrect it in some form in 2022. It's so weird to say that I was going to say 2021 again. Um, But in 2022, I still maintain, Sarah, that this is frankly, just an impossible task for Democrats. I don't think there's any way they can thread this needle. I think if anything, Manchin, uh, what Manchin said late last year absolutely confirmed exactly why Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad were right not to vote with the party on the bipartisan infrastructure package. So I think they've hardened. um, And I think that just makes the task all that much tougher. Where do you sort of see the state of this, really what Biden wanted to make the centerpiece of his agenda? And, uh, as we head into 2021. Yeah, I think I'm oh my gosh, what year is it? 2022. <laughs> That's okay. I can barely speak English right now, apparently. So it's fine. <laughs> um, I, I think Democrats really lost all of their leverage uh, when they decoupled the bipartisan infrastructure package from um, Build Back Better. That really was sort of the nail in the coffin for the version that Democrats wanted. But I think I'm increasingly an outlier here for believing that they could still get something done. If you listen to some of the progressive leaders like Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, there's still a note of optimism there that they can sort of make all the necessary concessions to Manchin and get something passed. When you when you heard the way that the progressives were talking after Manchin came out and said that he couldn't support the bill in its current form, that negotiating any further than this point on this version would be futile, the attacks from progressives were sort of the reactionary ones were accusing him of somehow performing some sort of bait and switch that he tricked progressives into conceding and allowing the infrastructure package to move forward without build back better. And then withheld his support for build back better. And that, you know, he, he had somehow committed to supporting the progressive spending wish list. but Manchin's really been the only one who's been consistent throughout this entire process with what he wanted. He never has changed. He's wanted a smaller price tag. He's wanted fewer programs funded for longer periods of time. And if you listen to the way progressives have been talking heading into this break, I think there's a recognition that Manchin called their bluff and he is not going to budge. And so if they want something, anything to get done, they're going to have to come to him. And that's still something that progressives may be willing to do. And there's a little bit more of of a padding in the house for them to do that. They can lose, you know, five of those progressives and still get something done. Yeah, they can. Um, and that's a good point. Um, and that's obviously what happened and, and enabled them to pass what they called the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Uh, but it's you're so right that Manchin called their bluff. Um, and I don't think... I guess I can't imagine, given the huge gulfs that exist on, for instance, um, and again, by the way, they were 
initially, let's not forget, trying to jam all of this into what was called an infrastructure bill under the ridiculous label of human infrastructure and soft <laughs> infrastructure. But the gulf that exists between them on things like voting rights, um, I, I just don't know. I, are there particular um, points of tension that you see? That's the big one that stands out to me. Of course, there are others, but where they're, how can the impasse um, are, are there particular points where that impasse just seems uh, most impossible to you? Well, I think when it comes to voting rights, I mean, to me, it seems more like a, a face-saving move almost. The Senate Democrats said they were going to table Build Back Better and pivot to voting rights, something that's been tried and failed many months before this, that, that moderate Democrats have shown absolutely no interest in, no interest in changing Senate rules to accommodate that legislation, no interest in the types of election reforms that liberals are interested in. So to me, that just seems like a way for Democrats not to acknowledge that they failed on their spending package, but just to, to say that they were turning their attention uh, to something else. Schumer sent a letter earlier today, actually, to colleagues outlining just how urgent the fight for voting rights all of a sudden is, and it's going to require potentially changing Senate rules. Um, but that sense of urgency hasn't been there for you know, almost a year now when Democrats have sort of let that issue sit on the back burner. When it comes to Build Back Better, I think one of the biggest impasses, most high profile ones at least, is on that child tax credit that mm -hmm. Manchin just does not want to extend without at least means testing it. But the fact that it's so widespread and universal doesn't have a work requirement is what makes it so popular with people. It pulls really well as an individual component of that legislation. And so I think there are, there are a lot of Democrats who are nervous about applying restrictions to the extension of the child tax credit in a way that would take the benefit away from some of their voters. Uh, but Manchin is, is not buckling under the pressure of Democrats trying to push him specifically on that child tax credit. Which is, by the way, not at all a tax credit. It's it's a monthly allotment. It's a monthly deposit. It's a monthly payment. And that's when Mitt Romney proposed something really similar. I, I think you know he didn't use that false pretense of calling it a tax credit because you right. Don't have to file your taxes Manchin, to claim it. <laughs> Manchin has said that. He said we're calling it a tax credit. Let's make it an actual tax credit and require someone to have filed a tax return in order to receive it. And so that that's obviously one of the areas where he's drawing a line in the sand. Right. And there's also the corporate tax rate, which we hear is from reports, uh, a particular concern of Kirsten Cinema. And uh, Joe Manchin has been getting the bulk of the blowback because he was the one who told Brett Baer on Fox News Sunday that he was finally a no and it, it was finally off the table um, for 2021. Do you see a similar dynamic in that Kirsten Cinema suddenly seems to have like sunk from the, being the front and center and, and hitting, being the target of so much opprobrium from um, the left, particularly the, the progressive, the far left. Um, why was she sort of out of the forefront, if you agree with my premise, um, over the last, I would say, month? I think, so I think it's two things. I think, first of all, her opposition to raising taxes in the way that Democrats wanted to is just as significant for the thinking of this bill as Manchin's opposition to uh, putting forth something with such a high price tag that isn't fully paid for, or if it looks fully paid for in the CBO score, if, if that's a reflection of sort of the budget gimmicks that Democrats have been pursuing. But I think Manchin is really happy to be the face of opposition to the legislation. West Virginia voters mm -hmm. are rewarding him for that. His approval rating is really high, much, much higher than 
virtually any other elected Democrat on the national stage right now. So I think Manchin is more than happy to be the face of the opposition, even though cinema opposing the, the sort of tax uh, rate increases that would pay for the bill in the way that Manchin wants is just as significant. That's completely, I think that's completely accurate. Um, another question we've, do you, the, the child tax credit, so-called child tax credit is a good example of this. What is the likelihood that Democrats sort of realize this price tag, corporate tax rate, all of these things are going to make it impossible to pass a large package, um, like a New Deal type package in the way that Joe Biden has uh, reportedly said he's <laughs> he's kind of fixated on? Uh, what do you think the likelihood is uh, this gets broken up into multiple bills? Um, because with something like the so-called child tax credit, the, the, the child payment uh, proposal, that could easily be bipartisan, given that um, we've already seen literally Republican senators like Mitt Romney introduce something. His also didn't have a work requirement. It was also not a tax credit. Um, what do you think the likelihood is that some of this actually gets broken up into pieces that they recognize it needs to be broken up into pieces and sort of give up on the dream of passing the, that one big ticket item? I think it's the likelihood is actually really small because the reason why they're doing a bill of this scope through reconciliation and throwing everything into this one vehicle is that because of the reconciliation rules and the way they're structured, they really only get this one bite at the apple to get everything through. So this is the only train leaving the station. Uh, then it's, it's going to be their only chance because otherwise, if they were going to break up these bills, into different components and pass it through regular order, they're going to need to overcome obviously the filibuster and get, you know, eight, nine, nine Republicans. Sorry, my son is screwing in the background, so that's making it hard for me to do math. Um, but they're going to have to get over the 60 vote threshold <laughs> Tell him uh, to pass any pieces of legislation. Oh, I will. He's a fan of yours. Um, <laughs> and so because of that, that's a really insurmountable task. I mean, sure, you have Mitt Romney sort of agreeing with the extension of the child tax credit, but that's an impossible task. So I think this is their one shot to get everything done. And what they're ultimately going to have to do is sort of make the hard choices, which they've not done so far, and drop some of the programs and fund just a few key items for a significant period of time. So far, all they've tried to do to get that price tag down is shorten the timeline of the programs that are in it. But they haven't really made any of the hard decisions about actually ditching some of their priorities, and that's going to be the next step to get something through. When did we decide to stop upholding free speech as a basic right? What's playing out right now at big tech companies and social media sites sets a dangerous precedent. Look, it doesn't matter what your politics are or who you voted for. Everyone should have the right to express themselves freely. Sadly, the big tech monopoly has instead opted for silencing tactics and censorship. To fight back against big tech's control of the internet, I use ExpressVPN. Ever wondered how free-to-access tech giants make all their money? Well, by tracking your searches, video history, and everything you click on. By building a profile on you and then selling off your sensitive data. When you use the ExpressVPN app on your computer or phone, you anonymize much of your online presence by hiding your IP address. That makes your activity more difficult to trace and sell to advertisers. What's more, ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your network data to protect you from eavesdroppers and cyber criminals. What I like most is how easy it is to use. It just 
just takes one click to protect all your devices. That's why ExpressVPN is rated number one by Business Insider. So let's stop allowing big tech to revoke our rights to free speech. Why not revoke their right to your data instead? Secure your internet with the VPN I trust for online protection. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash federalist to get three extra months free with my exclusive link. Go to expressvpn.com slash federalist, expressvpn.com slash federalist right now to learn more. So I don't know if you saw this report, Sarah, but there's a uh, a tidbit. I think it was Politico. Somebody has this morning. um, Oh, maybe it was the Washington Post. Who knows? They they had a report this morning that uh, Democratic leadership is trying to peg the voting rights legislation that they want to pass to January 6th in an effort to like get Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin over the line. Did you read that? What do you think that says about the maybe the desperation or the strategy of Dem leadership uh, in Washington? I have seen that. And I mean, I think Democrats aren't really learning the lessons from all of their other legislative battles over this past year and that Manchin and Sinema aren't really susceptible to the type of pressure that progressives have been applying. It hasn't worked in earlier voting rights legislation fights. It didn't work on proposals to amend Senate rules to change the filibuster. It didn't work on Build Back Better, and yet now they're going to try sort of those same tactics to get through voting rights legislation for the second time. There's very little chance that that's going to be a successful strategy um, and I've also read that, you know, the, the deadline that they're trying to um, set for passing voting rights legislation is going to be tied to Martin Luther King Day. Again, that's only two weeks away. And the types of reforms that Democrats are looking at when it comes to voting rights are actually pretty sleeping. I mean, uh, the bill that they tried to pass in the spring included everything from campaign finance reform to, you know, federalizing a lot of the mechanisms of the elections that are left to local governments. Those are some pretty big changes. So to get that done in less than a week's time uh, is just incredibly ambitious. Yeah. Do you think they overpromised to begin with? I mean, I don't know what it was. I think they felt like because of the the Trump era, they really had the wind at their back um, when they were devising what they first imagined as the huge, huge infrastructure package. And then they broke up into the the BIF and the Build Back Better bill. Um, they were really ambitious and they seemed to be, um, the way that they were negotiating, they seemed very confident, which has always puzzled me because they're the ones that are negotiating back and forth with the sort of the squad and the mansions of the world. I don't understand why they ever thought they could make such like they they actually, if anything, have come up closer to the Bernie Sanders uh, demand for what this price tag should look like and what should be in this bill, which I think has been a huge win for the left. I think this was extremely, extremely vindicating for the squad, but everyone always could have told you it would be. I mean, I think if you look back, Democratic leadership had to be delusional to think that what the squad was saying wasn't 
going to be how things turned out. To think that they could actually um, bridge both of these sides, it has just always seemed insane to me. I wonder if, if looking back, you think Democratic leadership, uh, the, the president in particular, who I think has actually escaped a lot of very fair criticism for overpromising, for being so uh, being being so optimistic about the likelihood of this passing. Um, I just it's it's sort of stunning to me that they're escaping criticism for being were over promising. But again, I'm wondering if you accept my premise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you have to think back about the context in which negotiations over Build Back Better began, that when Democrats started imagining this sweeping package, the economic recovery was going relatively well. Mm. Inflation hadn't really set in yet. Coronavirus seemed like it was under control. Republicans, some of them were playing ball when it came to infrastructure, and they had just managed to pass a really ambitious um, coronavirus stimulus package, the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act. And so because of all of that, I think Democrats thought that, like you said, they had the wind at their back, and the landscape was really favorable to them, and maybe they could pull some of those moderates along. But the ground sort of shifted underneath them since then. I mean, the economic recovery has turned out to be a lot more anemic than Democrats had thought. Inflation is not transitory. It's here to stay and impacting a lot of American families. Democrats have overreached uh, across the board, especially when it comes to social issues. And those are backfiring on Democrats. So I think all across, uh, everywhere you look, the Democrats are, are facing a completely different reality than when they started the negotiations. And Democrats who were skeptical when things were good are just absolutely opposed now that things are bad. Talking about Democrats like Manchin and Cinema. You just made a fascinating point, and it's one I was going to ask you about because you've recently written a story uh, with the headline, How Five Liberal Prosecutors Presided Over Crime Waves. And it gets to exactly what you were just saying, that the situation, and this is this is maybe like the biggest theme in the news cycle right now, the situation a year ago when Joe Biden took office is so dramatically different than the situation now. And I don't know exactly what's turned, um, but slowly it seems like people are starting, uh, people in the center and the center left are starting to be critical of some of these policies. I would argue, of course, that when it is uh, something like crime, as you reported on, it's because it's hitting a little too close to home for <laughs> folks in the, the coastal enclaves and, and newsrooms and, uh, you know, all of those different places of power. Um, but it is a totally different climate um, for whatever reason. And if you could just sort of give us a glimpse into this particular case study about liberal prosecutors um, who have overseen dramatic crime waves in some cases, uh, that would be fantastic. Yeah, I think, well, first of all, thanks for reading my story, Emily. It's very nice of you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a dedicated <laughs> Sarah Westwood reader and viewer. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, and second of all, I think that it's sort of the same situation and that a lot of those liberal prosecutors, I mean, you could take, for example, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, who's arguably the most liberal of the uh, DAs that were swept in in the sort of liberal social criminal justice movement. When you look at when they came into office, crime was pretty low. I mean, across the board, violent crime, property crime, homicides. And so, you know, the public was a lot more, I think, tolerant and receptive to these arguments about the need to incarcerate people less and try some of these alternative violence prevention programs that were more community-based. And uh, and the warnings from 
the opponents of those sorts of approaches that crime was going to get worse and um and you know we were going to see a spike in violence sort of fell on deaf ears because things were so good now that things are bad there's been a, a national reckoning about this type of liberal criminal justice approach and a lot of these i think liberal da's are going to face a real reckoning on election day next year all the ones that are up for re-election because you can sort of draw a straight line to when all of these liberal uh, prosecutors were put in office in these in these big cities and when crime began to proliferate obviously there are a lot of factors that went into that the pandemic is a big one the unrest that we saw last summer but in some places the violence started rising before all of that and as a you know arguably direct result of those those liberal prosecutors yeah the drawing the direct line point is so important i think your story really shows this um are there particular examples that stand out of the five that you reported on are there particular examples i mean obviously everybody knows about chesa booty in san francisco but are there particular examples that stand out to you as um the most stark yeah i mean i think you know larry krasner i mentioned him before it's probably one of the most stark he was very liberal came into office saying we're going to stop prosecuting a lot of uh, minor crimes and the violence in philadelphia has absolutely exploded in the four years uh, since he's taken office and yet despite the fact that the homicide rate has broken its record the highest the city has ever recorded this year krasner on his website still brags about how how much he's reduced the time that people have been put in jail, how many fewer people he's been putting in jail, as if that's something that his office should be proud of, even though, you know, the 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 crime has exploded under his watch. And so and I think if whether you're looking at obviously San Francisco, you mentioned Chesa Boudin, or whether you're looking at Baltimore with Marilyn Mosby, who is another prosecutor who stopped prosecuting those minor crimes like like prostitution and, and, and drug possession. And those are the sorts of changes that these little prosecutors have made. And you're seeing that violent crime far worse than what they've started to let go is, is spreading as well. Hmm. Yeah. And I looked up actually what you were talking about in reference to the Martin Luther King Day push um, that Chuck Schumer is making. And it just opens up this question um, similar to what you were just talking about in, in sort of a roundabout way. Where does all of this leave the Biden agenda? Well, Chuck Schumer, in this this different climate where people are starting to sort of see the cracks in the establishment's COVID policies, right? They're starting to wake up to the inefficiencies and to, um, in some cases, the lies, which may be fashioned as noble lies, but are lies nonetheless, um, and just the the bad governance um, that has come from the top down, whether it's their state leadership or the federal leadership, then you have the crime waves, um, you have the economy, you can go on down the line. Chuck Schumer is now uh, saying that perhaps Senate rules must be changed. He actually quotes Robert Byrd saying Senate rules must be changed to reflect changed circumstances um, and continues, Congress is not obliged to be bound by the dead hand of the past, quoting Byrd once again. The fight for the ballot is as old as the Republic, Schumer said. Over the coming weeks, the Senate will once again consider how to perfect this union and confront the historic challenges facing our 
democracy. So again, it's, it's something that they kind of tried out in Virginia, right? Like obsessing over Trump in January 6th in a way that didn't work, given what people were seeing happen on the ground in Virginia, seeing, seeing what was happening with these really radical policies in their schools, et cetera, et cetera. What do you think this says? Um, the fact that they're invoking January 6th and they are actually trying to make radical changes to Senate rules to pass this legislation, which you described, I think, accurately as sweeping. I think it's, a, you know, a sign that they're not really reading the messages that the public has been sending them about how far left their agenda has moved. But I do think that Biden still has a chance to get some of this stuff over the finish line, the climate provisions that are really popular, for example, uh, that are in Build Back Better and that moderates and progressives agree are necessary. Universal pre-K, something that Manchin uh, has said he's open to being in the final piece of legislation, something that pulls really well. But Biden really has to shift back to sort of the man that he was when he was running for president in 2020, promising more partisanship and centrism, promising not to shut down the country or mandate vaccines and, and, and sort of eschewing the progressive social agenda of his party and really sticking towards the middle. That's the kind of mandate that he was given with these extremely slim congressional majorities and the relatively narrow victory that he won in, in his presidential victory. I think he still has a shot, but if he continues down this path, I mean, one little discussed aspect of his presidency is just how many times the courts have struck down his attempts to use executive power, that he's overreached on everything from immigration to his pandemic policies. And so he sort of has to get away from that, get back to what put him in the White House, what gave Democrats their congressional majorities. Unfortunately, I think he's seemed a lot more vulnerable to pressure from liberal activists than a lot of moderate and centrist voters hoped he would be. He's caved on a lot of things. And one of them is uh, this voting rights situation, which is sort of the cause celeb of the activist left, but isn't something that a lot of regular voters care about. Very few of them, as you mentioned, uh, Virginia is a great example of this. Very few of them seem to care about rehashing what went on in the Trump years, and they just want to focus on the increasingly difficult problems that they're facing at home. And then that uh, opens up the question, the obvious and inevitable question of where does this leave Republicans? Are Republicans in a climate where Democrats are reckoning with their failed leadership on the state level, the local level, the federal level in very high profile ways, increasingly high profile ways? Are Republicans in any position um, to on, on two layers, one on the political layer to capitalize on it, and secondly, on the moral layer uh, to respond in ways that actually help the public? Where do you think the Republican Party stands when it comes to tackling some of these issues and comes to actually having a response to Democratic failures? Well, I don't think that Republicans are, you know, necessarily unified behind any central message right now. Different Republicans have responded in different ways to the Democratic overreach. But the landscape is, is so friendly to them right now. I mean, the public is coming around to what has always been the general Republican position on COVID, for example, which is that at a certain point, the, the cost-benefit analysis says you just have to open stuff back up. You just have to get back to normal life. And people are even Democratic voters are coming around to that idea because, you know, they sort of have pandemic fatigue. And so I think that's an issue that Republicans will rally around, stopping the vaccine mandates, which courts have already 
done in a lot of places. I think that will be another battlefield that will just be very easy for Republicans to win on. Democrats have made it really easy for Republicans. This is right now they don't really have to come up with their own agenda. They can just sort of run against what Democrats are doing. And, you know, that's what Democrats did to defeat Trump. The danger is that if Republicans do take back power, they are going to have to rally around a message that's not just pointing at the left and noting how ridiculous and out of touch they are. You, Sarah, have the misfortune of covering our politics on the like micro level of really following um, the day-to-day grind and uh, of the Beltway, what's happening, and outside the Beltway, too, talking to people um, in different cities, for instance, for your crime story um, and, and all of that stuff. And I guess I'm curious what you see, if you see, like a lot of people talk about the realignment, um, the political realignment in the sense that, you know, we mentioned the Romney policy, which would be something very, very favorable to a lot of Democrats. But even senators who have worked hard on child tax credits like Marco Rubio and Mike Lee pushed back on that. What do you see sort of happening um, beneath the surface in Washington right now as there are sort of obvious obvious signs of realignment, obvious signs of of shifts happening ideologically around the country. How do you think any of that is affecting what's what's happening in D.C. sort of below the surface? Well, I think the the realignment has driven a lot of the focus, the increased focus in serious circles on those culture issues. I mean, Glenn Youngkin is a great example of that. He's not the sort of candidate that you ever would have expected (laughs) to run on cultural issues. Uh, But because the Republican base is increasingly a a working man's party, that's what even these white collar corporate Republican candidates are going to have to focus on because that reflects what their base cares about. And Democrats are increasingly concerned about, you know, corporate tax rate and corporate policy and and things that used to be exclusively the domain of Republican candidates. So I think what... Yeah, what either side is is choosing to talk about right now and choosing to focus on is is sort of reflective of how the 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 bases of the party have almost completely shifted. Now the 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 elitist corporate uh, voters those are sort of shifting dramatically towards Democrats and t- causing them to focus on all of these far left issues that are just so far removed from the everyday lives of working people. Right. The so-called voting rights legislation is, a, is an excellent example of this. It's so radical, it would have been laughed out of the Senate 10 years ago. But it's something that Chuck Schumer is now saying is so essential to democracy that we must change the rules of the Senate to do it. And I guess what I'm seeing in this beneath the surface is the likelihood, and this actually happened, Republicans, as uh, are, uh, as Rachel Bovard uh, said on this podcast, or explained on this podcast, the way the rules change, um, went into effect with the debt ceiling, Democrats will be able to use that maneuver um, in the future, and maybe they'll do it on something like voting rights. But the question, I guess I'm wondering if you think that big changes actually to the Senate might be in store, or that just to the extent that something radical might actually happen in D.C., it'll be sort of uh, greasing the wheels to sort of throw legislation through more quickly in a way that is unfamiliar to our republic and our our republican system. Um, Do you think that we could be on the cusp of 
of serious filibuster reform, as they sort of euphemistically refer to it, or other other sort of changes to procedure um, that will allow Democrats and then also Republicans when the time comes to sort of push through big policies and, and leave us seesawing um, from radical to repeal, radical to repeal in the future. I don't see big filibuster changes on the horizon. And I think you made a great point. Normal people don't care about voting rights legislation. Normal people, I think, don't even think about election rules and voting by mail and things like that so far removed from an election. So the fact that Democratic congressional leadership has chosen voting rights (laughs) as the vehicle for implementing lasting changes with implications for just the very functioning of our government uh, is sort of crazy. They're not choosing to try to go to battle uh, over any policies that are popular with people, that regular people care about. They're choosing something that people in MSNBC green rooms are really upset about, but normal people outside of Washington and Manhattan just don't really think about. They're thinking about inflation. They're thinking about not being able to fill their gas tank up in their car, and, and Democrats are choosing to try to make radical structural changes to government based on something that is sort of a fringe idea that, as you mentioned, is so sweeping um, and so radical that just a few years ago would not be part of the mainstream conversation. Yeah, and, and Sarah is from Georgia, by the way, so when she talks about those sort of green rooms, she knows what she's saying. And I, <laughs> I'll also <laughs> add, Sarah, um, there's something something that stood out to me in the wake of Yunkin's win is that there was this sort of fleeting moment of uh, reflection and, and honesty on CNN that night. I think it was literally that night where they, I think Van Jones and a panel talked about maybe people, uh, maybe the, the Democratic Party leaning way too hard on these radical things and being completely out of touch and having it just, it's just gone too far morally and politically. Um, but then a couple of days later, similarly to what happened after the 2016 election, everyone decided, no, no, had gone too far it was just that everybody else is racist that anybody who voted for glenn youngkin is racist that all of these policies are racist 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 and maybe that's what's happening with chuck schumer's uh letter by the way which is what he said which he packaged this threat of of procedural change in um and so i guess i just am curious as we're wrapping up here what you think about uh, these, because when you talk about what average people talk about, yeah, like filling up their gas tank, milk, but they also care about those disgusting books we're finding in public school libraries accessible to children. They care about the racism being taught under the mantle of anti-racism in their schools. They care about um, all of these different cultural policies that Democrats have incubated in these radical environments and then pushed really frantically into the mainstream. So... Uh, is there like wh- how are they how are they going to respond when you see in any way that is short of like full procedural reform you're like more optimistic from the perspective that nothing will no major filibuster reform or procedural reform will happen and i'm just more pessimistic probably about everything um but why do you think that it, given how incapable they seem to be of reckoning with their failures um except for, I guess, these crime policies. Maybe the crime, maybe I'm answering my own question, my own wandering, meandering question. The way they've responded to public backlash on the crime policies with like Mayor London Breed, is that a sign that the Chuck Schumers of the world are maybe going to stop pushing so hard on this stuff? 
I don't think so. I mean, I think you're you're sort of helped me answer my own question from earlier of why Schumer would choose voting rights as a vehicle to try to ram through filibuster reform. I think it's because the Democrats have tried to tie that issue so closely to racism and accused anyone who stands in the way of that kind of legislation of being a racist. And so potentially they're going to try to wield that control against the holdouts that are leaving the filibuster intact during this period where Democrats congressional majorities are so slim because it's a much more emotional and sort of manipulative argument than trying to use something like build back better as the vehicle for pushing through those sorts of reforms. But yeah, no, you're right. The the reckoning uh, with how repulsive democratic policies have become to just the, their, what used to be their base as recently as five or six years ago was very short-lived, as it was during the Trump years. I mean, I remember in 2016, after Trump won on CNN, on MSNBC, there was a sort of five-second effort to talk to people outside of their normal coterie of experts. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I I want to ask, just again, we're wrapping up here, the story that you wrote, for instance, and you've written about this a lot, you know, cities that broke homicide records in 2021 often veered left on crime and policing. You've written all these stories that in normal circumstances with a media that wasn't so utterly broken would uh, be, you know, echoed in the coverage of you know, major publications like the Washington Post and the New York Times, etc. Um, I guess I'm just curious what you enjoy about reporting, like because you actually really like doing investigative reporting. You're not a, a pundit. You're not in commentary um, or you're not an opinion writer, I should say, um, but what is it that you actually enjoy about reporting and investigative reporting? Your work is always very fair. Um, and I think that's falling into fashion and it's just like less desirable as a career move now that everyone can um, give their opinion all of the time. So what is it that you enjoy about just honest, fair reporting? Well, thank you for that lead up. I don't think that's <laughs> justified based on my work, but I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I really liked talking to people. You know, when I was, you mentioned already that I was with CNN for most of the Trump years and just traveling around and talking to people all over the country uh, who supported Trump was really eye opening for me as someone who prior to the 2016 election didn't attend a single Trump rally. And now, you know, the stuff that I do is more investigative. It's more just like looking for patterns, like the story that you mentioned, um, patterns of the, the prosecutorial approaches in the cities that saw the largest spikes in, in homicides and being able to just make those connections. Um, I think a, a lot of that isn't happening because, you know, it's easy to sort of ignore crime spikes outside of the cities where you live. But I've, I've been writing a lot about the crime and policing issue just because I think it's just something that impacts anyone who lives in a city, myself included, <laughs> living in Washington, D.C. And, and, um, and it's, it's just a nationwide problem that Democrats are sort of on defense about now. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it was a full-throated endorsement of your work, but uh, I think justifi- <laughs> justifiably so. There are just very few uh, people, I think, that are willing to... Um, I mean, even when I, on the occasion that I do reporting, I sort of couch it in my opinion just because I want to be open about it, but what you do is falling out of fashion, and it's even people who claim to do it um, don't really want to do it, and if they do, they, they do it poorly because they don't have the stomach um, to like include for instance,
sentence both sides. Like both sidesism is mocked uh, in mainstream so-called fair newsrooms around the country fake now. Fake news, the fake news industrial <laughs> complex. <laughs> fake news industrial complex. Yeah, exactly, Sarah. Um, so we could do an entire uh, podcast actually on that because uh, you are. I think the kids would call you based. You're pretty based on this. <laughs> increasingly so these days <laughs> yes well sarah westwood of the washington examiner you can follow her on twitter at sarah c westwood thanks so much for your time thanks for having me of course you've been listening to another edition of the federalist radio hour i'm emily jashinsky culture editor here at the federalist we'll be back soon with more until then be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. 